Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is Ali Tucker. While Ali is not very active on the interwebs, you can connect with her on LinkedIn. And additionally, I always donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest's choice. And in this episode, Ali has selected the organization called Leukemia and Blood Cancer New Zealand. So please join me in donating for a very meaningful cause. One of the most personally meaningful conversations I have had on this platform was with Sarah Tucker, who is Ali's daughter. I did a lot of reflection from that episode. Sarah really focuses in her own life around the influences of colonialism and deeply self-examines where her beliefs came from, where her ancestors came from. And I was so moved by that. I asked Sarah if she could recommend one guest for me to be on the show, who would she recommend? And of course, a lot of Sarah's programming came from her mother, Allie, who is also in the leadership development space. So this was a no-brainer conversation to have. And I can see where Sarah got a lot of her wisdom and commitment to learning and growing. What I'm most drawn to about Allie is her dance of being both a student of life and a teacher. And the way that she deconstructs what it means to be a leader. I think there's a lot of antiquated models of leadership that say the leader is the teacher and is front and center of the room and is giving the students information that the students don't already have. And what Ali would posit is that really effective leadership is honoring the wisdom and intelligence of all of the people, voices in the room and it's not as much telling everyone what to do as listening to and empowering all of the people in the room. So as a coach, Ali helps leaders reorient to that model of leadership. There's lots of different influences of her work. And so we unpack all of the different influences of her work and her life. And another quality that I'm always really drawn to is humility. Ali seems like a humble servant of leadership development work and... It was just such a joy to sit down and talk with her and get to know more of the Talker family. So with all of that said, let's go ahead and settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this conversation with Allie Talker. Hi, Allie. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. This is the, the first mother-daughter series of guests that I've had on my show. So it's it's really neat to, I, I know that you listen to me ask Sarah the question that I always start with. And yeah. so I'm in touch with right now, just when I asked Sarah what it was like at her dinner table when she was growing up, that she was speaking to, in some ways, the home environment that you created. And now I get to see generationally, well, where did... How did Allie foster this type of environment in, in the home that Sarah was raised in? So what was it like, Allie, at your dinner table when you were growing up? 
Uh, well, it was, everybody was there. It was quite interesting. My mother was really hot on table manners. So, you know, there was a fair bit of guidance about how to eat nicely. And there was also a really broad range of conversation. My parents were interested in us and the the door was always open. We During the week, we didn't often have people join us, but there were occasions when other people joined us. My father had an importing business and in the days that I grew up, you, you couldn't take your guests from overseas to a restaurant. They just weren't there. So they used to come to our table and uh, be with us as a family. And it was really interesting. So we grew up being confident talking to anybody about anything. And also the conversation was about what you did during the day and what you learned. And I think I said to you earlier, it was the place where we really learned the values of our family and the values of, of both my parents were a thing called whanaunatanga in Māori, which means family, and manakitanga, which means looking after people. So it was the hospitality thing that was really important. And we were mostly talking about any topic that came along. It was a very free environment. As long as your table manners look good, you could talk about anything. Mm. It was great. I really enjoyed it. One of the things that I, or the phrases I took from the conversation that I had with Sarah was creating space at the table for everyone. And it, it sounds yeah. like that's there's a lineage of that in your family, which is what a beautiful thing. Yes. And you said, so the the fam, the values were family and what was it that everyone is important, everyone matters? Yes. Yeah, they were. And that thing about a space at the table goes back to when my parents met. Now, this was good a good deal before I was born, but my father served in the Second World War and met my mother when his training camp was near my mum's my family farm. And the officers were invited to families to come and meet people and get out of their ordinary world. And that's when my parents met, when dad was invited into mum's family for a meal. And I think they just spotted each other and the rest was history. So, you know, it goes on. And, yeah. and that is a thing with New Zealand families, especially if you're coming from a farming family, you feed everybody. And the other value that came from there was the idea that if you are part of a community, it's your obligation to contribute to it. So my parents were on committees. My husband and I were on committees. You know, we there was a real act of give back to the community focus for, for us and our family. And, and it surprised me when not everybody did that because that was what we were taught when we were young. Yeah. Did that feel innate in you as well? That that was even if you weren't taught by your family, the importance of creating space at the table for everyone, that everyone's important, that community matters and that you ought to be contributing to the community. Was there, is it hard to de delineate that like what was innate in you versus what was ingrained in you? The reason I ask is because I, I think that I don't know. There's the usually the most potent combination that I experience is when someone innately wants to be of service and to be giving, and also is taught that that's a really important value yeah. to have. Yeah, 
Yeah, both. While I knew that that was an important thing, there were things that I really cared about and and social justice was one of those things. And I know Sarah talked about that. Uh, she went on her first protest at sort of 18 months old or something. We, we were willingly involved in, in quite a bit of those days. You know, you march down the street. These days, these days you do it through social media, but we were active in social justice mm. when she was small and willingly so. How did you, how were you taught to navigate conflict or, or big challenges? Like if you were faced in invariably when, I mean, your whole life, you're going to meet challenges, of course, and things are not going to go your way. They're not going to be easy. What were some ways that you were supported or, or taught in, in how to navigate really tough challenges or how to sit with uncertainty or, you know, things that don't have really clear, easy answers? Well, I can remember one iconic moment when I would have been about six and I was walking down a hot, dusty road with my father and he, I must have been complaining about something, and he said to me, complaining about it will change nothing, so you may as well just get on with it. And I still remember it really clearly because it was a great lesson and there is no point in moaning unless you're going to do something about it. So that that sort of just suck it up and get on with it happened then. I have to say in the time that I grew up, conflict was not an open thing in our family. My mother wanted us all to get along and dad didn't enjoy conflict either, even though he you know, had a big job and there was no doubt conflict all the time. Conflict was something I had to learn later on. Mm. I was a bit ill-equipped with skills to do something about that. And I think in my professional career, I've got I've got better at that as time's gone on. But I, I never enjoyed it. I was puzzled by it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I definitely got better at it with practice. Mm-hmm. So it, as much as one could really understand in, in 10 minutes, I, I could never understand the totality of, of you and, and what shapes you. But there's, a, there's definitely a pretty clear picture of why you would want to get into leadership development, human development, that that social justice matters to you, that you stand for wanting everyone to have opportunities to succeed and to thrive in the world. And I'm, I'm wondering, given what we've spoken about, or otherwise, frankly, as well, what how would you decide how you've arrived at where you are professionally in your life right now? Right. Well, I mean, education is something that was another value in my family. Uh, It was highly valued. We weren't pushed, but the expectation was that we would make the best of learning opportunities. I trained as a teacher after I left school, and I just loved it, but I burnt out. It it was just a full-on job. If you do it properly, it exhausts you. And then my career has been one of, of a a number of opportunities to get into to learning and development. So I was I had a job after teaching. I went and finished a degree and did a master's degree. And I was setting curriculum for for the banking industry. And then I had a change management job. And eventually just the thread that goes through it is just the joy of being with people while the learning's happening. And 
in the last 20 years that the, the thing that's gone through there is my involvement in leadership development in many environments, from a boardroom through to outdoor education, which I totally embrace. So I've worked for 20 years alongside the Outward Bound School. And I know this one in New York, the New Zealand one is a fully immersing thing where you teach or give people experiences in which they can learn. It's not teaching, it's sort of providing the experience. Um, when you're sailing and rock climbing and lost in the bush and or lost in the forest. So I think it's moved from the teaching to providing the environment for people to learn. Mm. And once you realise you don't have to tell them everything you know, but help them to learn what they already know, it just makes everything so much easier. Mm. There's so many, I want to talk in maybe different contexts about how you would help to set up an environment that's ripe for learning, because that seems central to a, a lot of the work that you're doing. But I'm definitely drawn to, you said, is it, it's the outward bound school? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. So what's, what are some ways you, you started to allude to it a little bit, like maybe it's mountain climbing or just different outdoor experiences, but what are, what's the intention behind uh, creating a, a school like that that's focused on outdoor learning? The school was set up or created by a guy called Kurt Hahn, who was German, and he was in England during the Second World War, but he did notice that during the time when people were in extreme situations during that war, it wasn't the young, strong ones who were surviving. It was the wily older ones who knew what they stood for, who had the experience, who knew what they could do. And so to him... The, the phrase that the Outward Bound School uses is there's more in you. And that's the purpose of it, to push you further than you think you can go. And experience is really important in that. I have a view that, you know, it's more effective to experience your way into new thinking than think your way into new thinking. You know, do it and then reflect on what you've learned rather than well, I know that, but I'm not going to do anything about it. So it's an environment which is inherently safe, but appears scary. And people just learning what they're capable of. Many of them just aren't too keen on the experience while they're doing it, but look back with great pride and satisfaction that they did more than they thought they could. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm curious about how to trend. This is fascinating. And I... I love the the notion, the thought of learning from your action rather than learning and taking action. Because if we talk about education, I don't know how true this is in New Zealand, but certainly in the US, there's a lot of conditioning around you you learn something or you if even if you become a doctor or in my case I was trained as an accountant, there is a lot of learning that goes on before doing. And with that conditioning, with that patterning comes a, like, I need to ingest a lot of information before I do the thing. And I, I love the flipping of this, that actually we're doing ourselves a big disservice if we don't invert that at least some of the time that we get into doing 
and then reflect afterwards what the learnings are. So what are, what are some ways that you bring this into, let's say, the, the boardroom or a, an environment that isn't as inherently conducive, in my experience, to like you take action and then you reflect and then you take action and then you reflect? I don't think it is inherent. And I think people need to be reminded. I think about one of the psychology papers I took at university and we had to memorize 90 pages of experiments and just regurgitate them in the exam. I had to get over my fury over that and actually do it. And I, and I did, but I've always felt that people need to know how to solve their own problem. And I, and I believe they do. And that is where the whole world of appreciative inquiry has been part of my practice for years. And that is, trust people to know what to do. They know their world, you don't. Give them the opportunity and see what comes of it. So the teacher must step back from being the person who knows stuff. Um, the second thing in there is I've been working with the work of Lisa Leahy about making sure that when you're coaching and working with people, they do set up experiments for themselves, you know, and that's related to the to the idea that your thoughts aren't necessarily true. They're just your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And it's important to go and check them out. And that's a step that that hadn't always been taken in leadership development. It was just a given, and therefore this is true because you got it in a 360 report. But that move into let's test that has has really changed the way I work. So just don't believe what you tell yourself. Just get another perspective on it. That that certainly altered the way I have worked. And I, I felt really fortunate to have spent my professional development time and my career with people like Lisa Leahy and um, Barry Oshry and mostly American, actually. I used to go to the States nearly every year to go and do some professional development because I think there's some awesome things coming out of there. So, but it's a push. Some people don't want to do that experiment because it's scary or or whatever. But I mm. think it's important to test your own thinking. Yeah, you kind of led me towards where I wanted to go. I, I wanted to get really practical about what an example of experimentation might look like, and maybe uh, you know. I'm, I'm trying to think maybe if there's a personal example for me that we could play with. Cause I think a lot of times that is, is helpful that the, a lot of times the personal or the individual is, is universal in a lot of ways. Yeah. I guess, you know, one thing that's really common and that was certainly a major struggle and to a certain extent is still a struggle is being able to clearly and coherently speak what's on my mind in a meeting. So if I were like behind closed doors in a really comfortable environment, if I'm at work and let's just say I am having the thought that there's an unreasonable deadline or something, and it's a a person that has on the hierarchy is, is higher up than me, that's a, a partner or, or has a, a strong stakeholder interest in, in the company. There's all sorts of fear that I might have around speaking up around this is an unreasonable deadline and speaking up in a meeting in and of itself was, has always been a really big challenge for me because I, like you, Ali, I, I think that conflict is something that I'm really learning right now and stepping into that 
it's not a bad thing. I need to be able to in, embrace that conflict can actually help us resolve something that's maybe unclear. But I guess what, what I'm getting at is so what would be like if a client were to bring this to you and say, I'm, I want to speak up at meetings, so you just don't know how to, it doesn't feel comfortable, I feel sweaty. What would be like an experiment that you would help them build? I think there's a process in here if you think about the work of Lisa Leahy, that work about immunity to change. It's really important to get to the point of understanding why that is a problem. And she would say in a very brief way, so this is what you want to get better at. So let's look at what you're doing at the moment that's enabling and also preventing you from doing this. What are your habits that that take you there and keep you back? And then she would say, so let's test that. What's the assumption behind that? And there'll be some assumptions that you need to test. So and for, for your example, sometimes people say, well, my assumption is that, you know, look like an idiot or my assumption is that what I say won't be important. And and I'm just, you know, com- conflating two things here but and coming to it really quickly. But it would be why why don't you go and talk to someone about how you come across, somebody you trust, and get some feedback about how you show up rather than just use your own thing. Because when you're in your fear state, it's very hard to, you know, be dispassionate. The other thing I learned was that conflict is interesting. Mm. It's not good or bad. It's a thing and it's interesting. And can you take that as a way of being curious about it? And what I found over the years has helped me was to see conflict as an opportunity to learn more. So trying to stop that defensive response immediately and say, oh, yeah, thank you. Tell me more about this and why why this is coming across like that. And it's taken a lot of practice, but that's my way of dealing with it, seeing it as an opportunity to find out more. Mm. The other thing that came to mind as you were talking was that I worked with this chief executive who's just wonderful, and she said to a group of students I had, don't ever let anybody wonder why you're in the room. So finding a way of contributing that's genuine for you. Because I think, I don't know about you, but I see in meetings people just blaring on so so people know they're there, you know, and that's it's pretty annoying, really. <laughs> Isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And and the sycophants who go, yes, I think that's extraordinary, fantastic. You might pose a question or ask for, for clarification or something like that, rather than this whole notion of being an expert in a meeting. So conflict is interesting. I, I love yeah. that. Mm. As in my experience, adopting a new belief at first, there, there's a, a teacher of mine who says every new belief at first feels like a lie. And yeah. was, was that true? I'm guessing it was true yeah. for you, right? Yeah, it's about taking a risk. Yeah. And that's an experiment in itself. Okay, I'm going to experiment with 
that um, conflict's interesting. And so I'm going to step into the next one I think I'm in and, and see what happens. But in Lisa Leahy's work, she says, you know, make them small and manageable. Don't sort of do it with the chief executive on day one. So just some little experiments about stepping in and genuinely reflecting. And if, if there's somebody who, who you trust who's in the meeting as well, get their feedback and brief them beforehand. You know, this is what I'm going to try and do. How did I, how did I go? Hmm. Is typically how we would approach that. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe identify what, what the challenge is, identify the way that you ideally would show up. And, and maybe a third would be identify a way to experiment that is engaging you in a way that's challenging, but not overwhelming or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. When you work through that framework, it does reveal to you that while you've got an intention of being seen to contribute, there's there's probably a fear. And I can remember that happening for me as well. You know, the first time I was standing in front of a, a senior team of an organization thinking, wow, I what am I doing here? I'm re- I'm really scared. And that happens to everybody. Mm-hmm. But understand the fear that sits behind it. Just keep looking for it. And then saying, well, thank you. I understand that now. Off we go. Mm-hmm. But it takes time because those things are in a sort of, those are things that our parents put in place for us often. It's like the voice in your head, you know, the things that your parents put in place to keep you safe that were, were great when you were six, but a big problem you know, when you're 26 or 36. And I have learned in my 30s, actually, working with a really great woman to thank the voice in the head for its past performance, but to tell it it doesn't need to contribute anymore. Thank you very much. Thanks for keeping me safe. I'm going to shut this down now. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to the way that I approach it as well, that... Yeah. And, and yeah, my experience is, is very similar with regard to a lot of times the fear that we have, it originates from a time that we were younger, if not six, certainly from a time we were younger. And if not from our parents, then from some sort of authority or, or person or situation, we, we looked up to someone or something else. We learned a certain behavior and then transpose that behavior in all contexts and, and take it as true really is, is I think... A lot of my fears are, I've accepted them as true. And what what I'm hearing from you is that when we can embrace or allow the fear to be there and say, thank you for protecting me. And let's just see, you know, let's just try this thing out. Maybe it's not true in this, in this scenario. A lot of the times we find out that the thing that we fear isn't true (laughs) after all. Yeah, that's right. I'm just thinking about you, you were talking about your childhood. You know, I was, a red-headed left-handed child and was told not to not to stand out just to mm-hmm. you know be invisible that's what you wish for as a kid to be like everybody else and i've never been able to not be noticed so i that was a decision for me and going well I'm, i will step out because i may as well i mean if i was ever in trouble it was so obvious everybody knew who it was mm-hmm. um yeah 
Thank you for sharing that. So uh, education, there's a lot of different ways I want to talk about education with you. And, and in the screening, when you spoke about education and, and how it's been, how it's formed you in so many ways, how it's shaped you, how it's helped you learn and grow, and not only for you, but the level of importance that you would place on education in terms of how it can support everyone, including people who are in extreme poverty, that education seems foundational for how we can evolve individually and collectively. So I want to start with, you started to speak to it a little bit. There's a lot of different things that have shaped your way of thinking, but when I invoke education, are there specific learnings that come to mind for uh, ways that you have been shaped? Maybe it's studying under a specific person, anything at all. And I would love to, at some point, then get into a, how do you look at education systemically as, as something that can help us evolve in the way that we need to, given where the state of where we are as uh, really as a planet right now? I think the way that education has changed is really interesting. You know, it used to be that there was the teacher and the pupil and the theory that the pupil knew nothing and the teacher would impart the knowledge. Um, it didn't honour anything about the learner. I think luckily that has changed and even when I was a beginning teacher in my first year of teaching, I had a lovely class of kids. They don't give you the monsters in the first year. They're just gorgeous. And I had three years of wonderful kids in one particular school. And in that first year, I had them on individual learning contracts by the end of the second term. So we were sort of capturing what they were interested in and we had a little contract with each other about what they would learn that week. Now, that was pretty radical, and but it's still being explored now. So the education thing is, is a guiding thing rather than a teaching thing. And I think um, our education systems have not kept up with that. I think there's way too much chalk and talk still. But there are some inspirational teachers out there who understand that what you know has a lot of value. And I'm, I'm seeing that at the moment. But initially, as I said, it's about the, the way out of poverty for anybody in the world. The, the tricky thing here, and I know you talked about it a lot with Sarah, is the, the thing that is part of it is the colonisation. And when you come to a country and teach them your way, it's often and usually bad. So the move from teaching to enabling learning is something we need to do really consciously. I found some of my undergraduate study as I was there with an, as an adult student with small children, I found it frustrating because you just had to do the essay according you know, to the schedule. Free thought wasn't welcomed until later on, you know. But the whole academic system is a bit odd, really, I find. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think it, and you notice it because I'm a bit older now, and I notice around me the people who aren't still learning are getting a bit rigid in their thinking. And with some of that comes fear of 
the future, fear of the present, fear of other people who aren't like me. So I think that's also why it's really important is to, to stay open because society's changing and we need to change with it. I don't think I answered your question, but that's what, <laughs> that's what, um, that's what I think about that. Well, in, in some ways you did, because I think that it's really important to underline that <clears throat> education, the way that you and I have learned it in a lot of ways is that the teacher has an answer, knows the answer, and then teaches that to the student. And one of the really damaging ways that that might play out is that if we, you know, if we take New Zealand as, as an example, or the United States as an example, if we go into a less developed country and try and teach them, you know, our, our way of this is what's going to be helpful for you without any understanding of their context and who they are and, and what has shaped them. What, I mean, is that really making a mm. difference? Is that really helpful? And we don't, it doesn't have to even be that, I don't know, severe isn't maybe the right word, but that's what's coming up for me right now. It doesn't have to be that drastic. It doesn't have to be a teacher going into a, a less developed nation. It could be, I am talking to a person who I've never met, but I size them up in so many different ways about how I, how I see them based on the, they're all my projections of what they are, but we're doing, there's an incredible disservice as in terms of education as teachers, we are doing an incredible disservice if we aren't curious and looking at this as a, a symbiotic relationship of, I don't know you, I want to learn from you too. Like I, I know some things, but you know a lot of things too. You are certainly know more about you than I do. So, and if we can look at education that way, that would be, that'd be beautiful. If we honored the, I was also in touch, Ali, with the way that when you speak to your dinner table environment, that that seems like it was inherent and built in. That there's a lot of children are meant to be seen but not heard. Like I've heard a lot of former guests say something to that effect. And that is absolutely not what I hear when you spoke about your dinner table, your family culture. And so in a way, you you were indoctrinated into a family culture that honored that. And you, you were able to see firsthand the benefit of having every voice heard. And that just because someone's seven and someone's 60 doesn't mean the 60-year-old is better or smarter or, or knows more, which might be true in a lot of ways. But Everyone's got something, a unique perspective, unique value, and what would happen if we allowed for all of that to be there? That's a that's a beautiful way to educate. Yeah, I I, I think it is. I just want to pick up something that you said early earlier on. I think some things are definitely true. Like if you're an engineer, we do want you to know how to make buildings stand up. But <laughs> we we assume that some things are immutable that aren't, you know? So there are fewer things that are absolutely true than we've been taught are absolutely true. So, yes, I mean, I was really fortunate in that upbringing. And I think that, especially in my father's case, who came from a very conservative background, they were migrants to New Zealand where his mother was. And I don't think that's what he grew up with. And one of the inspiring things about my dad was to be able to see that you can experience something but lead a different way yourself. You know, he he wasn't going to replicate what happened to him. And that was one of the really cool things about him was that 
I learned that other things are possible. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was very fortunate. And I see that in Sarah's kids who also have a voice. They are confident to speak up. They're really comfortable with adults. It's really wonderful to see because a, a lot of teenage kids get a bit buried in their iPads and disengage from the world. Yeah, mm. I see I see that all the time. So I I will be a, a father at some point in the near future. And I that certainly would be the environment that I would love to create for my family. It would be such that I am honoring their voices and they're going to be so they're going to have so much intelligence and natural yeah. curiosity, wisdom, think, seeing things in a way that I don't. And that there's so much on, on learning. I mean, that's another part of education to me is education a lot of times implicit in that we we're talking about learning. But I think unlearning is also really important, especially as we get older. A, a lot of my development in the last few years has been letting go of some ways that I learned mm -hmm. and teaching myself to operate and behave differently. So I think that that's a yeah, really important thing to underline here too. I agree. I remember when I was learning a, a new model or framework about how people behave and the difficulty of unlearning what had become a deep groove in what I knew. And, oh, gosh, that was hard. But it's it's worth it. I, I think when you're thinking about raising children, I, one of the rules that we had, or the principles that we had in raising our kids was, the boundary is a hard boundary, but what you do in it is up to you. Mm. So we gave them a lot of choice inside a very clear boundary. And then every so often the boundary would creak and we had to sort of spread it out and give them a bit more space. But they could they could make their own choices about things that we thought didn't matter. So we we raised them that way. And I and I think it's great. And I we learned that from another couple who we knew who had kids. And I observed them and thought, that looks really cool. So mm. that's what we did. And sometimes it's hair raising, really. You'd think, oh, gosh. So I hope it all goes well for you. Thank you. It's very humbling being a parent. You go, you go from being a competent, confident adult to having no idea. But it's already bringing up a lot of the, you know, perfectionism in me and, and wanting yeah. to, you know, do parenting right and to get it right and to, you know, never trigger my kids and never be triggered around my kids. And there's yeah. also, it's of course going, it's ripe for learning and unlearning. And so I'm, I'm already very in touch with that. I do want to more directly go into things that have been formative in your own personal education like what what have been some things that have been really formative for you things that you have learned that have really been foundational like you've spoken to lisa Leahy's immunity to change so maybe that's one of the things you could talk about immunity to change but like anything at all that has been really foundational for your own education and, and how you see the world or your work or anything yeah i, I was thinking about that and by the way, this has been really interesting for me to reflect on a whole lot of things. Knowing we were going to talk, I've been able to do some good thinking about the past and the decisions that I've made. And hmm. 
sometimes life only makes sense in the rear vision mirror. So when you're, you see the patterns, but when you're in it, it just feels like a mess. But a couple of really big events. One was coming to the States in, I think, 1999 it was. And I came in and learned about appreciative inquiry as a process of working. And the work of David Cooper Ryder and and those around him was really key. And I'm still in touch with the wonderful Marge Schiller, who was my teacher then. And it was just such a fantastic way of seeing the world. And I I used that and still use that every day. So that was a big thing. The other thing also happened in America was we were in Washington on 9-11. And it was just the whole thing was awful, as you all know. And we were supposed to be visiting the Pentagon that day, but our tickets got taken by somebody else. So because we they were more important than us. And then the last plane came down in a field near where we were. And I just said to my husband, life is too short. I'm never going to say no to something because it could be a bit scary ever again. And that pro- propelled me into saying yes to things that were a bit frightening and just finding my inner courage again. That made a big difference and it opened lots of doors of being, you know, scared and whatever. But it was really important. It was a very transformative event to be part of that. We came up to New York when Amtrak opened in just the next week. Wandering around Manhattan was just amazing, really. Just changed a whole lot of things for the way I thought. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, one of the things that I immediately admired about you when we first spoke, I think it was a couple of months ago at this point, was your commitment to, you basically said to me, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to be learning forever. I'm going to always be growing. And I think that's a, it's a beautiful stance to take. As long as you're alive, you're going to be learning, growing. And yeah, it was over 20 years ago now, you said that you're going to say yes to, you're, you're not going to say no out of fear. You're going to say yes to things that you want to do. And so I, I look at this, uh, I'm kind of connecting dots right here as what are, what are some things that you're saying yes to right now that you would, you would say it's taking courage. Like maybe you're pushing your edge. It's bringing up some fear for you, but you're saying yes, because life is too short. I think I've, I've got a habit of at the beginning of every year before the work goes in, the learning goes in. So that's everything revolves around that. I am, I'm saying yes to more coaching work. I'm saying yes to a better balance for myself. I have worked too hard in the past and I'm saying yes to to putting away the fear of not having a full book, you know, because people who are consultants worry if the book isn't full. So I'm saying yes actually to to having a better balance in my life and not pushing myself too hard. And and that's a bit scary at times, but it feels great. <laughs> yeah. But as an early adopter of stuff, that won't stop me from saying yes if I see something really interesting that's worth doing. 
And the thing about being a consultant in New Zealand is that we know a bit about lots of things. I noticed in working with people from the States, you were much you have a much deeper knowledge about fewer things. <laughs> so few of us that we need to be able to do everything. And so the breadth of it, I'm still happy to go wider and wider because it's so interesting. I, yes. I laugh in recognition of how true that is that Americans, we one way it might be one way to call it might be ethnocentric. <laughs> we're we're very we're stuck in our little bubble of the world and there's also a lot of us. So there are a lot of you. An example of that was I used to work with the Forum Corporation, which was a big, I think Corn Ferry owned them now. It was a big leadership development business. And they had, you know, 50 researchers and all of that stuff. It was amazing. And in a client piece of work, there would be the person who won the work and then there's the person that did the contract and then there was the person that designed the work and then there's the last person that did the, the delivery here you do everything mm-hmm. so yeah there's there's a lot fewer of us so yeah that i was thinking about that as well new zealanders are travelers many many of us have passports and there was a thing called the oe the overseas experience and it was normal that you did that and i think sarah might have mentioned this but you know, when you left school or you finished university, you put on your backpack and off you went. And I know that a lot of American people don't have passports. You don't have the, the holidays that we have. And you also have an enormous country that you could explore without without needing to leave. Mm-hmm. That's very true. So there, there's a couple of things, Ali, that I wanted to actually circle back on. And one of them was... It's interesting when I ask what what are some things you're saying yes to, it, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that taking a fear or tackling a fear head on is some bold, huge, massive action. And, and a lot of times with people that are really high achievers, that the action that needs to be taken is maintaining balance. And I actually really appreciated that. That, that really resonated for me and landed for me as something that I'm always mindful of. It's really easy to fall into the inertia of it's better to have a full calendar. My work that I'm doing is really important. So let me do as much work as possible. And it's hard to be really resourced and energized and available to show up fully to your work if you aren't maintaining some sort of balance. So I, I really appreciated that in your response. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be, you know, I'm taking a million more courses and I'm, I'm challenging my, my beliefs about X, Y, Z thing, which of course is happening anyway, but maintaining balance is, is a lot of times the, the underlying that allows all that to happen. So I wanted to underscore that. And I I wanted to circle back also on what appreciative inquiry is. So you said that that was something that was really impactful for you with regard to your coaching. And I, I love the name of it. I'm not super familiar with appreciative inquiry. I have an idea of what it might be. So what if you could describe a little bit about what it is? Well, there are some principles that sit behind it. And one is what you focus on gets bigger. So if you go into an organization to fix what's wrong, you, you get overwhelmed by the wrong and it's very hard to get to right. Another principle is that people 
who've experienced success can do it again. So what about we enable people to do it again? And that there are four stages of it, and one is discovery. So if I was working, I'll give you a practical example. If I was working with a, a group and they're just being set up, we might say, let's let you interview each other about a time when you were part of a really amazing team. Because we've all got different experiences of that. So you hear the voices of others. What does great look like? So really expand that. Then what do you value about being in this organisation? So you're bringing it to the heart. The next question would be, if we were to recreate that here, what's possible and how would we get there? So you're, you are hooking into positive experience rather than, you know, complaining about everybody's had a bad, everybody's had a bad team. Mm-hmm. And, and if you focused on that, you just get more bad team. Mm-hmm. And it's a principle that you can apply to anything. It's like when we've talked with teams about customer service, let's talk about what great looks like and how can we get that here? And what what's great leadership for you? How can we get that here? So it's, um, it's a world of possibilities rather than problem solving. Mm-hmm. If you get my, get my drift. And it yeah. does acknowledge that each of us comes to a situation or a work environment with very different experiences. And the more we can find out what they are and engage them in the future, the more success we're likely to have. Mm-hmm. It's a really great process. And it's one of those ones that means as a, as a facilitator, you're not teaching anybody anything. You're just helping them find their way forward and it's cool yeah that's beautiful yeah it's not here or let me teach you about the characteristics of a good team it's you've been part of a good team before what made it a really good team for you and it's it does speak really nicely to a lot of the things that you've been talking about so far in today's conversation that, that everyone has these answers at some point w- within them everyone i'm also in, in touch with like I was going to, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, all right, Ali, so what if I'm a first year employee and I, I've been on one team my whole career and it's been shit and I feel really frustrated. I don't even know what a good team is. I was going to ask what, where you might go with them and what I'm in touch with before I even, I, part of me wants to just ask that question, but another would be, you could ask like, have you played sports? Have you ever done a project that you're really proud of? Have you, there's, everyone's been part of a team at some point and everyone's probably been part of a good team and they're all related, right? It's like your little league baseball team that if it was a good team, there's probably something that you could learn from that, that you could then bring into, you know, what would make a successful team here. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You've answered your own question really well. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, if they haven't ever been in that basketball team, they, they've they observed it. So yeah. they could see that. But I'll tell you the one where people often say, I have never experienced that, is when we ask them, talk about a great manager that you've worked for, and people go, no, nah, I can't think of mm-hmm. one. That's That's a bit worrying, but it happens from time to time. 
So where do you go with that? I mean, there's you you already answered a little bit. You said, okay, you you've watched a manager probably yeah. perform really well before. Is that where you would go? Yeah, but yes, that's right. And when you have, as I have, had some amazing managers who saw in me things that I didn't know were there, it just makes a big difference. The first people you, those who have a great manager in their first experience, just are very fortunate. Because mm. the first time you do something, it it has quite a, a large impact on on what happens next because you think that's the way things work around here. So mm. what about you? Have you sort of can you think of great managers or leaders you've worked huh? with? Yes, I can. And I wanted to I wanted to ask because in the very appreciative inquiry, at least in my limited understanding of it currently, I wanted to ask what made them great managers for you. So you could put a pin in that. I'm very happy to share about my experiences. The first manager that I ever worked for professionally, I I was I lacked a lot of confidence in a lot of ways when I first started working. So I think that she empowered me. She would have me lead meetings well before I ever believed that I had any business leading meetings. And so I think one of the characteristics that I admired about how she empowered me was this level of trust that she she didn't know for sure that I was going to lead an amazing meeting or and and even if I didn't, then she would have been there to say it's you know I well, at one point also didn't know how to lead a meeting or you know something like that. She would have offered some level of empathy and understanding and the trust that she put in me and and I saw the way that people that man were managers of her empowered her that they really were just overseeing. They were allowing her to take the lead and and do as as she needed to do and only interjecting to the extent that she might have asked them a question or for their input. And yeah, my my tendency would be to micromanage. Like I I like to be the one who knows who's in the weeds, who knows the details, because there's a certain level of control that comes with that. And and they demonstrated to me a level of leadership that is very trusting. That if you really believe in the people that you're working with, then good things happen. And micromanaging has a whole set of different downstream negative effects that, that come along with it. So I think that that's definitely one level. I, I, I also think that maybe something I want to name here is that it, it can be, I don't know if appreciative inquiry would go here, but it can be helpful to to look at what didn't work and by process of elimination go okay well this is <laughs> let's flag this as something that we maybe want to not do because i yeah. i've seen sorts of bad managing including by myself go on as well and so we can learn what might be good to to see well I, this isn't working if, am i willing to try something different yeah uh Yes, you're right. And I think there's that important conversation is, you know, you've thought about the ideal future. And I think there's a valid conversation there to say, what should we take with us from the past that's been awesome? And what must we leave behind? Mm -hmm. And leaving behind that micromanagement and the bits we didn't like. If you name them, it's easier to to not take them with you. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? The the leaders who had the biggest impact on me 
were ones who were coach leaders. You know that learning cycle about if you don't, if you're still, if you're learning something brand new, you're in a state of unconscious incompetence. Yes. You know that one? So they lead. Could you, could you say it? Uh, could you say the different stages? Or I'm, I'm happy to as well. So unconscious incompetence. Don't know what you don't know. You've the next stage is you've figured out what you don't know. So you're in a state of conscious incompetence. Now I know where the gap is. The next stage is conscious competence where you are self-coaching often. So it's in your consciousness and you're demonstrating. It's like when you have that, when you're driving early on, you're talking to yourself about making sure you don't, you know, drive over the curb and all of that. And then when you become very skilled in something, you're in unconscious competence. So it's that automatic pilot thing about, I don't remember how I got here, but, you know, I know enough to do it. And my great uh, coaching leaders were ones who who lived in conscious competence when they worked with me. So they explained why they did things and could uh, articulate the thinking behind it. And that was so valuable. One one in particular, we'd we'd go for a, what was going to be a tricky meeting, and she'd say to me, "Well." This is what I'm concerned about. I think this is what we're going to try and do. And we'd debrief at the end of the meeting as well. And she she would ask me for feedback about he, how she showed up and she'd give me feedback about how I was showing up. So, mm. But they're rare, those leaders, but that they, you learn so much from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot, yeah. I mean, we, we need to be able to live on automatic pilot because we don't want to have to figure out how to get dressed every morning. But that that can, what's obvious to you isn't obvious to everybody else. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's a good point, right? So it's when tying your shoe or putting on your clothes, it, you don't want to be expending energy or brain power on, you know, swoop-de-loop and pull or whatever the thing is for tying your shoes. It's just automatic, but in some ways, yeah, it stops us from learning about other people when we when we size up too many different qualities about them. And so getting back into that zone of, I'm curious, I'm learning, I, I don't know exactly who they are or why they're doing this as leaders, that, that's so valuable that you've experienced that. That one has been probably a little bit missing in my own personal experience, but it has not been missing in, I think that's what makes a really great coach, honestly is the ability to stay in touch with how someone's like evolving and different in any given moment. And, you know, like a lot of times as a client, I'm bringing very similar challenges that if the coach that I'm working with, if he wasn't doing his own work around it, he'd probably be all sorts of impatience. Like, Mike, we've, we've spoken about this seven times in the past three months. <laughs> haven't you figured this out by now? And I think that there's a refined quality in a lot of coaches that it's like, of course, you know, this, it takes a while to learn. I, I'm stuck in all sorts of different ways myself. And it takes, it takes forever for me to figure out this new way of behaving. And so of course this is inevitable. It, It happens. That's, I, I guess in some ways that's, I don't know if that's exactly what you're speaking to, but that's what came up for me. Yeah. When I did my coaching training, which was, you know, long after I'd been coaching for a while, I thought I'd better get this piece of paper that's going to be important. 
And so we went back to the discipline and I was taught very clearly that this is the way to do things. And that was extremely helpful. And knowing how much of yourself to put into that conversation. And because when people are being classically coached in the purest form, the coach says hardly anything. And you do all the talking. And some people want to know a bit more about you than that. And so I have noticed in my own coaching as time goes on, I share a bit more about myself. And that seems to to work. Yeah, that thing about, you know, how do you get people to confront things in the mirror and asking them a question. Yesterday I was working with a group and there was a woman there who I hadn't seen for a couple of years and she came up to me and said, oh, my goodness, I remember what you said to me last time we met. And I thought, oh, dear, what did I say? And she said at the end of this group coaching thing, you said to me, if you weren't acting like such a victim, what would you be doing now? And and she said it was totally inspiring. I was a little appalled, heavens, you know. So it was a real reminder of those little phrases and words we say when we're in a position of alleged authority, the power they have. Mm. And we need to be very, very careful. But she... She was grateful for it. She's a great person. And she's just saying that to all her team. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ali, there's there's something I know that's important to you. And it seems like a lot of coaches are like when I got into coaching, I I don't think I was in touch with just how important this might be for uh, the future of our species, uh, of our collective, of our planet there's a lot of coaches who really deeply care about activism, justice. I never equated that they were overlapping in that much of a way. I I think that it first came from more of an egoic potential way. Like I wanted to leave a dent in infinity or, or something like that. And I, in the screening of our interview, I asked for one question that you would love to be asked. And so the question that you wrote is, What's your wish for, and please forgive me if I mispronounce it, Aotearoa, Aotearoa, (laughs) New Zealand in 50 years. Aotearoa, New Zealand 50 years time. And I I would love to hear your answer to that. And I I also want to hear just like, what do you think the role of coaches is for development of of our future? Mm. I'll start with the future of New Zealand, Aotearoa, New Zealand. You know, we have the same problem as many countries in the world. You know, colonisation is bad for people. The thing we have that we need to hold on to here is that there is a treaty between the Crown and the Indigenous people, and it needs to be honoured. And I can see that we are heading towards that. And the other thing that's a bit of a sidebar here is that for Indigenous people, there is nowhere else to go. Like, I'm from Scotland and Ireland and, and my ancestry. I can always go back there. I don't like what I've got here. But for Indigenous people, this is their place. And we need to acknowledge that and not be fearful of walking together as partners. I, that's my greatest wish is that we 
will walk side by side, all of us. We, we've got a huge number of people in Auckland, our biggest city, 25% of them were born somewhere else. So we're a country of migrants and I and my wish is that we tolerant and successful and seek each other's views and work together. We, we can't afford to have this uh, political system that pits people against each other about things that frankly don't matter. Mm. So I think I'm an idealist there, but I do get fed up with this sort of, I don't know what, what the general word is for it, but when you're arguing at a political level, nothing new is created. It's just a stupid argument. And mm-hmm. in the meantime, people are suffering. And I think you know about that as well, where you're mm-hmm. at. It's, it's just a sideshow. It's a circus. So more power to the people in a good way, that the, that the resources are shared, that we're being successful, that we're green. We're, we've found our mojo again. We've been very creative people. And hopefully we've found found that again. That's what I hope. I love this country. I think we're we're very fortunate, and we've had we had a great leader. And I think our leaders are generally really well intentioned, good people. Mm-hmm. And I think we're one of the second least corrupt countries in the world. So that's great. Long may that continue. <laughs> So, I mean, you beautifully laid out what your vision would be for New Zealand in, in 50 years' time. The question with regard to coaching is, what what role do you think coaches play in making that vision a, a reality? I think they're really important, increasingly important. When I first started in this um, leadership development work, it was a little bit of prep, had the experience and waved them goodbye. and increasingly coaches are part of the whole learning journey and that it becomes a norm for people. I think people have always had mentors, you know, people who they looked up to who gave them advice and often they came from aunts and uncles and parents and people in the church and all of that stuff. But I think coaching is is critical to keep people's feet to the fire and encourage them to do learning, I, I think that's going to be vital. And I, I love to see how many people are taking up coaching, and I, it's, it's great. So we've spoken a good amount about this, and one of the best gifts that a coach can offer is just the power of really genuine inquiry. And yeah. I would love to hear some of the questions when, when you're in inquiry with people. What are what are some of those challenging questions that you might ask that, that change the lens or invite them into a new perspective? Or, or maybe it's just questions that you ask yourself because a lot of times the best questions, the best coaching I do is with myself and, and I ask myself. So would love to hear yeah. just some of the questions that you sit with or ask other people to sit with. I think some of the... The powerful ones are asking people, you know, if you go back to you at 15 years old, what what were you dreaming of? Or, you know, moving around in time. Imagine now you're ready to retire. When you're looking back, 
what do you want to have seen on that journey? Sometimes the questions around what's possible rather than what's not possible. Questions about, so what are you noticing about the answers here? I was working with someone recently who really needed to to make some changes to the way she worked, but was too fearful to do that. So was going to move on rather than stop and think about what she could resolve in herself. And she was a challenge. I don't I don't think I got there with her. But I do think asking people, you know, what's the scariest thing that that you're thinking about this? So getting people to talk about what they're afraid of. Uh, those are good questions, I think. Mm-hmm. Those are the, and there's, I've got a heap, a heap of them. So, like, if you were really living the values here, what would your next action be? Or those sort of things, asking people to speculate, uh, to sort of reflect and then to speculate. So a sort of double-edged question. So let's look back. Okay, so what does the future look like then? Mm-hmm. I think those are great questions. I mean, what what are you noticing about your answers already? There's like inherent reflection in real time that you're asking of someone, which is beautiful. And yeah. and moving around is a very moving around in the kind of space time continuum of if you were on your deathbed right now, or if you were in retirement, or if you could speak to the 15 year old version of yourself, those are all wonderful ways to shift perspective and to get, I I guess the question behind all these questions is what matters to you, right? Is that, is that true? Yeah. Yep. It's got to start with understanding what you really value. And that takes time because when you're young, you take on the values of your family, I think, or you reject them, but that understanding what your values are are often, as I said earlier, only really clear as you look back and the choices that you've made. And sometimes we make some bad choices and you can look back and go, I didn't trust myself. I should have listened to my gut. Our guts are very reliable and the more experience we've got, the better they are. Here, here. Well, I, I'm curious to hear, I, I have a few more questions for you, but is sure. there anything that we haven't spoken about so far today that feels important to you to bring awareness to? I don't think so. I think I did a lot of, I do a lot of interviewing myself. You know, it's my own reflection thing. I I do a lot of reflection and a lot of that's interviewing myself. So I was interviewing myself about the things I wanted to say, and I think I've said those things. Well, that's wonderful to hear. And it sounds like a really cool practice, the, the being an inquiry with yourself. So I, I wanted to ask you, it's something that, that I just recorded another podcast earlier today. And the lovely woman I spoke with said that she wants more ease in her life. And, and that's something that I sit with a lot is this, this tension of like, do I really have to schedule time to relax and to play and to just do things that are nourishing for me? And it sounds like there's some tension there for you too. So what are what are some ways that you're wanting to integrate balance into your life? Like what, what does balance look like to you? Balance is spending time with 
family and making sure that's there. And my husband's nearly fully retired now. He's just doing some community work. So spending time with him and what we do is just get into the diary and just put time aside and go say we're going to do this or we're going to do that. So absolutely planning for that. Otherwise, it's so easy to just get immersed. So number one, put it in your diary and then you can act as if it's there by some divine intervention. So that's really key. And just looking after your health as well, like really monitoring how you're going and taking action on that stuff. So making sure you you know you've got the fitness, you've got the social connection, enough time with people who who give you joy. I can remember in my 30s stopping and thinking about the people I was with and thinking, some of these people just don't bring me much. And my job for many of them is in that rescuer mode, you know, that rescue victim persecutor stuff, Cartman model. And I thought, oh, what's that in me that's being drawn to that? So just being a bit selective about who you spend time with. Mm-hmm. So, so, and I, I'm at a place where I, I don't need to work full time. So just setting a goal and working as much as I want to. And it's great. The alternative's terrible. You know, <laughs> it's just, you, burnout is dreadful. And you have to see your work as part of a, your whole life. It's, it can't be just the, the thing. It's part of everything. And as people get older, different family members need you. You know, there's more work to do in the community. So just broaden the lens rather than being really focused in on the job. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And maybe just for so for my ease, I just wanted to presence the the rescuer, the perpetrator, and the villain. Is that it's the the drama triangle? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Catman yeah. drama triangle. And are you familiar with that? I'm familiar with it. In I think the con. Are you familiar with the conscious leadership group? They they call it the victim, the villain, and the hero, which is the drama triangle. Oh, it's, right. it's really one yeah. and the same thing. It is the same thing, and. The mistake we make, you know, if in my language, the rescuer, if we step in to try and rescue someone, we actually diminish their ability to solve their own problem. Mm-hmm. And it's answering a need in ourselves, not them. And it's it's a really profound realization to come to. That's so, exactly what we're speaking to with the micromanaging, right? That's a, a quality that I'm unlearning right now is that yeah. it's, it's a form of being the rescuer that I am mm. jumping in instead of allowing the the most learning and development to happen. I'm, fi- you know, fixing the problem in air quotes, but it's, it's coming from a, a place where I'm in a weird way being really self-serving. And the work that you're doing, are they also talking about the winner's triangle, which is... What's that? transitioning rather than um, being a victim, there are times when we are all vulnerable and you can be vulnerable without being a victim. And you can, instead of rescuing, you can care for people. And instead of being the persecutor, you can be assertive about what you need. And that's 
that's being in the adult ego state rather than the child parent stuff that the other one you can never solve a problem in the drama triangle but you certainly can in the women's triangle just getting out of those those parental and childlike roles and into adultness could you say the the three on the winner's triangle again i i really love that Um, so there's assertiveness yeah that assertiveness caring and vulnerability beautiful yeah i'm sure you'll enjoy that whatever the learning you get out of that it's it was a light bulb moment for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. like you, like you, I'm a committed lifelong learner, so I definitely want to take a look at that. What are some practices, some daily practices, or things that you practice on a, a regular basis? I love talking about practice. I sort of I try and get out to a walk every day. I mean, we live in a a community that I live beside the sea, and we're not quite beside the sea, but near a beach and walking near the sea is is really really good stopping and having a meal with my husband so you know we um talk together and i do have a limit to how many emails i'm going to talk to fortunately i also have a wonderful ea called brenda who's also sarah's ea who she just takes a lot of the load, the admin load off. So she just makes so much of that easy for me. But the rituals are about that whole balance thing and knowing when to just walk outside and go for a walk or whatever. The physical relaxing is very important to me. And I I no longer look at the emails first thing in the morning, but I eat and do those things first and and I don't look at them after dinner. It's just because that's the that's the challenge about working from home. There's nothing to stop you going to 24-7 on these things. And it doesn't matter. And the if I don't get to them, my message to myself is I could have been in a meeting all day. Nobody knows that. So I'm gonna pretend I was and not look at it till five o'clock. Yeah. Yeah, I love that because today was one of those days for me. Like I actually just didn't have the opportunity to look at my email and no one is, I highly doubt anyone is sitting around going, what the heck? What? Where, why isn't Mike checking his email right now? So that's, uh, that's a neat one to bring in, a neat little trick that you yeah. can, you say, hey, yeah. like what if I was in a meeting all day right now? No, no one would really yeah. know. No. So that's what I've, those are the thoughts that I have about, managing that but you know I've come to this balance in the last few years I I was able to be as workaholic as anybody before that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah which isn't helpful you don't do your best work no where do you feel most unfinished I think there's more to do uh to go the full circle back into the community and get involved in more community things as I get older. I think I'm. That's the bit that's still what calling me. Yeah, because that's the community needs people who have got the time to do that. I think there's that. I think that's the bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well. Speaking of getting more involved in community, every episode I ask for an organization that you, the guests, would like to raise awareness for. 
And yeah, one way to get involved with community is to donate. And uh, we're going to raise awareness for the leukemia and blood cancer New Zealand. Is that is that right? Yeah. Leukemia and blood cancer New Zealand. It's it's pretty self-evident in the name what, what the organization does. But if you wanted to say a word or two about why this organization matters to you, and I will just name that I'll link to this in the show notes, and I will be donating, of course, to this organization. So right. why did you select this organization? Well, I mean, at a broader level, we've got a huge number of people being diagnosed with lymphoma, and it's it's shocking, including my husband. He's got it. And I've got a blood disorder as well, which sort of came out of the blue. And these they, these people do amazing work, and there's never enough money. But the work they do in the community is something that I really support. They run support groups and so there's a lot of encouragement for that my sister did a a shave for a cure thing I don't know if it happens in the states but you shave your hair off and people give you money she did a shave for a cure for my husband which was great Mm. and there's never enough money for education for help but I think I would love to see more people supporting that and particularly the research why has this become a bit of an epidemic Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I hope the listeners will uh, join me in donating. It's it's obviously for a wonderful cause, and for you, it's a, a personally wonderful cause. So I'm very uh, happy to support. And yeah, I just have two more questions for you. And one is, where would you invite folks to connect with your work, be it maybe a website or uh, other places that people can engage with you? I don't have a website, and that's sort of deliberate. But I can be found on LinkedIn. That's where I I am. Yeah, that would be the easiest place to find me. Awesome. Good for you also for having a you know successful business without a website. That's I love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know that comes a little bit from but one of those messages from my upbringing. There's a word in New Zealand which you may not know, but it's about skiting. And skiting means to show off. And you mustn't, that was one of the rules, you mustn't yeah. show off. And there's something in me that says, you know, self-promotion isn't isn't who I am. So so I haven't ever had a personal website. I've had business ones, but. Mm-hmm. Well, good on you. And uh, I, hopefully this podcast, I will do the promotion for you so you don't have to oh. <laughs> worry about it. But. The the final question that I ask in, in every single interview, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I would love to hear in your words what it means to Allie to live a meaningful life. Mm. It means to honor your body and look after yourself, you know, and it means to honor other people and to honor what they bring and be curious about what others bring Mm. rather than judgmental. And I think a lot of that comes from certainly my upbringing, but the fact that my husband and I have done a lot of traveling and when you see other people, it's confronting to your own values, but it's a great to just be open to it. So a meaningful life is to, is to, 
always stay open to other people's worlds. Hmm. Well, Ali, I think that's certainly something that you and your entire family embodies that you stay open to other people's views and stay open to yourself too, that you're always shifting and learning something I really deeply admire about you, that you are just constantly looking at yourself as learning, growing, unlearning, evolving, and that there's a, a life force behind that. That's like, it's life sustaining to look at yourself and look at life that way. And that is certainly something I aspire to. And I, I also aspire to the notion that, you know, everyone has a really valuable perspective to offer. Mm-hmm. Everyone is inherently a really valuable person. And I definitely yearn to live in a world and societies that honor that, that are set up in a way that support the, the collective and not just the a select few or specific type of person, people that look a certain way or a certain gender, et cetera, et cetera. So those were some of the many reasons that I wanted to have a conversation with you recorded and, and share with the world. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be here with me to uh, start your Friday morning. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And the opportunity to reflect before I spoke to you was just really valuable. So Mm. thank you. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful to know. There was a gift before the the conversation even happened, just the the forced Mm. reflection. So Yeah. yeah, there's something to be said about that in our industry as well with coaches, that if you show up to a coaching engagement, you're probably reflecting in a way that you wouldn't. So even outside of the session, but anyway, that's a kind of a meta reflection. Wishing you listener a wonderful rest of your day or evening. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Take good care and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's search for meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.